Welcome to the Trinity Western University Chapel podcast. It is our prayer that these chapel talks would bless your heart and they would draw you closer to our Lord. We offer them to the glory of God and for the good of the world. So if you were here with us on Friday, you'll remember that we had this rope in the front of the sanctuary here in the front of the gym, creating a half moon around the band and all of the first year students came and grabbed hold of that rope. And we wanted the first year students to come in and to know, and for the rest of us to be reminded that although we can be very much alone and feel lonely at times, we are a community. We are surrounded. We're surrounded by seniors. We're surrounded by local pastors and the churches that have supports for us, staff and faculty, and then all of the fellow journeyers we're surrounded by. And there are times when we need to lean in and to rely on others in order to get by. My desire for this series this fall is to look at Hebrews chapter 11 so that we are all of us reminded not only that are we surrounded by each other here, but we are surrounded by exemplars in the faith who help us in this road less traveled to walk faithfully beside God even when things are super difficult the heroes of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11. That's what we're going to be looking at this entire semester, fall in chapel. And today we're going to begin by looking at Abel. So what I'm going to do and what we're going to do every week is we're going to read the backstory and then we're going to read the passage that is relative to it in the book of Hebrews, okay? So The story that Hebrews is going to refer to, the author of Hebrews is going to refer to, is in Genesis chapter 4. Right after Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Garden of Eden, out of the manifest presence of God, because they've reached out to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we read this. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. And here is how the author of Hebrews remembers this story. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Now, what you're going to find here in chapel is um, my commitment to you and our commitment to you is we are going to do our absolute utmost to have you out of here by 1130 because we know that some of you have meals to go to, some of you, you know, left your homework to last minute and you've got still half an hour of homework to get at. So that's our commitment. So what you're going to find is that the messages from the front are extremely brief. They are like a little TED talk. I'm gonna try and say a lot in a very short compass of time, not by speaking fast, but by being brief in the messages and really having a single point. So here's what I'm gonna do this morning. I'll give you the structure. And then we'll go from there. So here's the structure. I'm going to tell you two stories, and I'm going to have a challenge for you, and then we're going to go. You ready? 
Okay, awesome. So two stories. First story is a fictitious one. The second story is going to be a true story out of my own life. First story, the devil comes to three monks one day and he says to them, if I give you the power to change anything in the past, what would you change? The first monk, quite a simple person and suffering from something quite immediate in his life, speaks quickly and says, oh, I know what I would do. I would change that altercation I had with my brother because it's brought so much grief and sorrow to me and him and to our parents and to our whole family system. I'd go back and change the conflict that I had with him. And the devil says, ah, yes, yes, I can see why you would want to do that. The second monk, who was a little broader in his thinking, and who took a little more time to answer said, no, no, I love what my merciful brother says there, but I would go back way further, devil, and get to the source of it and get to the root of all of our pain and struggle and the conflict that we have in this world. And therefore, I would go back to the beginning and I would make sure that although you tried to tempt Adam and Eve, they would have remained strong and they wouldn't have eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And all of the sin and all of the shame and all of the pain wouldn't be in this world. And devil said, oh, yes, yes. I understand why you would want to say that, to be sure. And the third monk got down on his knees and he prayed and he was silent for quite a few moments. And then he said, away from me, devil. I will not engage in this question for I know exactly what you are trying to do. You have no power to change the past and yet you would get me to think about how I could change the past so that I'm stuck in the past. So that I'm fixated in the past so that I obsess on the past and cannot focus on the present time, cannot be present to the present and no longer have hope for the future. That's story number one. Story number two, a personal one. I was 13 years old. I was at Stardust Roller Skating Rink, which I think they've subsequently destroyed. How many of you have actually been roller skating before? Is that a thing today? Wow, more of you than I thought, okay. So I was in grade seven, 13 years old. We were preparing to go to high school. It was a gathering of all the local elementary schools to go to high school. And I saw this girl. She was the sweetest thing I had ever laid my eyes on. She was quite a distance away but I desperately wanted to talk her. So I gathered up all of my courage within me. I took a deep breath and did what any 13 year old would do. I told my friend Jeremy to go and talk to her for me. (laughs) Jeremy did, he went over there and he talked to her and he said, yeah, my friend, you see my friend over there with the blonde hair and the blue shirt? Well, he he really wants to talk to you. And she said, well, send him over then. So trembling, I went over and she was just as amazing in person as she was from a distance. And I fell in love at that moment. I really believe I fell in love. I went home that day and I told my mom I met the girl I was going to marry. And I believed it. I did. I found her phone number. I still remember it. Her name was Michelle, 4657534. I called her every day. Yeah, every day, sometimes twice a day. It was the most exciting thing about my day between grade seven and grade eight. I did this for a month, I did this for a month and a half, I think it was two months, and somewhere between June and July, she said to me, Ed, I think you're calling a bit too much. And I said, no, 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 I totally understand, no problem, why don't you just call next time? The next day at 9 a.m., I was waiting for the phone to ring, 
it didn't ring, and then the next day, it didn't ring, and to make a long story short, all through the summer, she never called me. We got into grade eight, it was awkward, we hardly talked, grade nine, same thing, grade 10, same thing. Finally, halfway through grade 11, we were plunked into the same class together, and I made my moves, I was pretty chic, went in there, and I was told by one of her friends, she had a crush on me, thank you, Lord, I was so excited. Finally, my dream was coming to fruition. And I thought, okay, she's got a crush on me. I know what I need to do next. I need to ask her to go out with me on a date to Vancouver. Yes, guys, that's what we used to do in the past. We'd ask a girl on a concrete embodied date somewhere nice. So yeah, girls, right? This was courage. So I went up to her and I said, I'd love to take you out to Vancouver on Friday night to go for dinner and go to theater sports. What do you think? I was chewing gum at the time. She said, yes, I swallowed the gum. Dead serious. I was, so, I was very excited. We go out to Vancouver. We had a dinner together. We're sitting at theater sports. She crosses her leg. I'm sitting on this side of her. She hooks it around the back of my leg. Oh, just about lost it. Completely lost it. I remember on the way back to the car, you know those parking meters? I think they're about this high, maybe this high. I was leapfrogging them. I was so excited. We went out. I asked her out to go study the next week. And exactly a week later, we went out for two and a half years. Oh, but we were young. Oh, but we were immature. Oh, but we were foolish. Two and a half years goes by. Our relationship was in shambles and we realized we got to call it off. And so mutually we agreed, you know, we had to end this thing. It just wasn't good for any, either of us anymore. It was at my house in a field by my house. She draw, drove off and her whatever it was, 1982 red Honda Civic. I walked in through the front door of my house, in through the living room and out to the patio where my dad was sitting. And you know how this goes, right? You see your parent, you're all holding it up inside. I saw my dad and I started sobbing, heaving. Ed, what's wrong? Dad, I said, my future just walked out the door. And that is exactly how I felt. She was my future. Everything I had hoped for, everything I had planned had walked out that door and driven off in that bright red Civic that day. And it wasn't only my future that I felt was gone, I felt my past was a waste of time and I spent the next days and months completely incapable of being present to the present. I was reliving the past with her all of the time, going over and over, what went wrong? What have I could have done differently? How can I gain her back? Looking into the future and absolutely dreading what was down the road and what was to come. And I was not present to the present. I fell out of my own skin. I didn't want to be in the present moment. I didn't want to receive what God was having for me in that present moment. And what I want to say to you this morning is, oh, any of you there? Maybe not to that degree, but along the scale, you know, it's kind of hard to be present to the present because there's what you left behind. You are in a major time of transition as a college student. It doesn't matter if your first year or your last year or something in between. This is, a, this is typically a very unstable time for young people. And you might be thinking about what you left behind at home. What relationships? What broken relationships? What memories, what experiences that have created a sense of loss of you and you're kind of stuck, fixated on what you've left behind. It's not allowing you to be present to the present or maybe it's something in the future. You're worried like, how am I actually gonna pull off these grades? I was never really a good student. Trinity let me in anyways. 
Am I going to keep my athletic scholarship? Am I going to meet that person that I'm actually secretly hoping to meet? Or am I not going to meet the person? Or am I going to meet them, that person that I don't want to meet? Whatever it might be. But we can be in a position where we're not present to the present and where we are unable, therefore, to receive the joy and the life of what God has for us in this present moment. And it's tragic. It's like the Family Circus cartoon put it so succinctly and so beautifully. You know, yesterday's the past, tomorrow's the future, but today is the gift. That's why they call it the present. Yes, it's the gift and only gift that we have is the present moment. But so often, so many of us are living in the past or we're worried about the future. So the question I have for you and the challenge is how do you become a person who's available to be present in the present? Here's the challenge. Embrace the faith of Abel. That's the challenge. Embrace the faith of Abel, which is to say, make this better sacrifice that Abel makes, which is to say, be willing to give up exactly and precisely what Abel is willing to give up. And you're gonna say, oh great, you're asking me to give up eating meat? And to become a vegetarian, because after all, right, he sacrifices meat and Cain sacrifices veggies and God is happier with the one who sacrifices eating meat. No, of course not. That's not what's going on. So what on earth is going on on this strange little story of two brothers who each offer sacrifices? Well, when you're reading Hebrew literature, you need to pay attention to subtle, minute differences and do a little bit of a comparison and contrast. Yes, it is true that Abel offers meat and Cain offers from the fruit of the soil. But that is not why God favors Abel's offering more than Cain's offering because we see in the Old Testament and the book of Leviticus and elsewhere that God finds favorable both sacrifices that are meat-based and sacrifices that are vegetable-based. So that's not it. So what do we see? We see a description that qualifies Abel's offering over and against Cain's offering. And what is the qualifier? Well, while Cain offers some of the fruit of his field, Abel offers the fat portions from the firstborn of his flock. And then we've got to say, okay, what, what does that represent? What does that signify? Fat portions from the firstborn. Well, I have a suggestion for our understanding, and it is this. If you lived in an agrarian society, if you lived in a society where it was subsistence farming, which is to say that you lived from meal to meal, because you'd have to go out there every day into the field or into the flock to see if there was going to be enough just for that day so that you could survive another day. Meal by meal, subsistence farming. What might the fat portions represent in a society like that? What might a firstborn represent in a society like that? Well, how about this? How about that those things represent your future? Or more pointedly, what if those things represent your best prospect for a good future? I think that's exactly what it is. The fat portions in the firstborn represent the best, your best prospects for a good future. A future of survival, 
a future of thriving because if Abel can eat the fat portions and himself become a little fat, he's guaranteed himself a better future, at least for a little while. If he has only a firstborn, at least he knows that he's got something to eat for today or tomorrow or the next day. Yes, I believe that when Abel sacrifices the fat portions and the firstborn of his flock, that he is offering up his future to God. And more pointedly, he's offering the best prospects for a good future to saying, here God, I wanna give you what I consider to be my best prospects for a good future to you. I put this in your hands. I give you my future, even though it looks foolish to the world. And I'm giving up control of those best prospects for the future. Now, why does Abel do this and how? And here's something. It's because in the core of his being, Abel believes something. Abel believes that the best prospects for his future are not material. The best prospects for the best kind of future are spiritual. To put it another way, Abel's fat portion is not a piece of meat which is going to allow him to physically survive another day. Abel's fat portion is to walk in intimacy with the sovereign God who loves him, who is good, who as Jeremiah said, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you life and a future. The question for us this morning is, are we willing to believe that our fat portion is God himself? That our best prospects for the future are indeed not material. What we can secure for ourselves in terms of what we think it is, like my relationship with that girl, Michelle, which I thought was my best prospects for a good future, but actually, that God is my best prospect for a future. That any future with God in it is going to be the best possible future available to me. I challenge you to accept this today that God will be and can be and is indeed your fat portion, the fattest portion there is. And I'll conclude with this, coming back to my own story. Yes, I was devastated. Yes, I was crushed down. Absolutely, but something began happening. God began haunting me in the best possible way. He began coming into my life. I began opening myself to him and going, okay, Lord, I surrender myself to you. I am yours. I don't, I don't wanna focus on the past anymore. I don't wanna focus on the future, but I wanna focus right here, right now, what you might be doing. And God had to pull out some roots. Oh yeah, and that hurt. He had to pull out some weeds from around me and oh yes, that hurt. But what began to happen is that every day became an adventure. He started to lead my steps. I honestly didn't care what happened to me as long as I was walking with God. He became my joy and my future. Eventually, five years after we broke up, he brought that girl back into my life. But we didn't come back as we had met the first time. We came back as new people who now were people of substance and greater character because God had been working his future in us, which is resurrection life. So this is the challenge I have for you today. Let me pray for you, then we're gonna sing the doxology. Lord God, it is one of the hardest things that we are ever called to do, which is to offer up our past, to offer up our future and to say, oh Lord, please take them. We entrust these to your tender care. But I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would give us the ability 
Give us the trust in your goodness and in your love so that indeed we may take what we have, what we're struggling with and put it in your hands and that we would enable you, oh God, to work in our lives today. I pray this for the students. I pray this for anyone who is struggling. In Jesus' name.